Morning. Good opening set today, huh? Way to go band on that, man. That, that is some fire in it. Thank you. Thanks for leading us into that today. Those of you who don't know me, my name is David Gadini, pastor here at Fellowship of Faith. Just want to welcome you to worship this morning, whether you're here in person or whether you're live streaming with us. Just so glad that you're here. Beautiful day outside. It just, it's like new hope. There's no mistake that Easter comes around this time of year. If Easter is all about new hope, new life, new creation, the new dawn of what God is doing, thank you, Lord, for coordinating it to the weather. You know what I mean? Just helps. Thanks for being a part of this. And guys, it's not, uh, it, it's not that far off. Next week, do you believe this, is Palm Sunday already. And so, yeah, we're coming into Palm Sunday. And here, at, you know, growing up at a lot of churches, what Palm Sunday meant for me was that we got a, like a little palm and we just kind of waved it and we were supposed to be excited, but it was really like Sunday like usual. And here at FOF, we, we, we try to kind of turn that whole concept on its head. We try to recreate what it was like when Jesus came into Jerusalem that first Palm Sunday. And the city of Jerusalem swelled from 30,000 people to hundreds of thousands of people where the energy was frenetic. It was Mardi Gras, guys. And what we try to do is pull out all the stops. And I want to encourage you, come out next Sunday. You don't want to miss our Palm Sunday service here. It, it's, it, it's the first chapter in the entire Holy Week story. And let God come and meet you in that. We do something else as well that I want to put on your grid, and it's called pilgrimage. Now, Today, we tend to think of pilgrimage as being something we might hear at most or at best in like a Muslim context, like, like a pilgrimage to Mecca or something like that. But you know, way back into the Old Testament, as early as Deuteronomy, you see this recorded, where God called his people to take a pilgrimage to Jerusalem three times a year. One of those days was Palm Sunday. We think of it as a Christian holiday. It started as a Jewish holiday, a Hebraic holiday, an Old Testament holiday. And so Jews would come from all over, some walking literally hundreds of miles to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. It's why the ground was set when Jesus came in the way that it was. And there's something about a physical journey that God will often work in. In fact, I was talking to one brother here a couple weeks ago, and he did the uh, the Campo de San Santiago Trail, it's, it's, it's a 300-mile trail, pilgrimage trail, across the French-Spanish border. And he shared with me how he went on this as an atheist and he came off as a Christian. God works in this stuff, you know? And there's something about these physical gestures, these physical acts, whether it's raising our hands in worship, whether it's getting on our knees or prostrating ourselves before God, whether it's fasting or whether it's endurance, walking, trekking, going, that, that God, if we seek him in it and, and we, we orient it around him, he works. And so where is this going? Next week for Palm Sunday, the pilgrimage is on. We've been doing it here for years. Those of you who are veterans, you know it. Walk. Some have been asking, are we doing this? Are you doing this? That's the more important question. You don't need Fellowship of Faith's permission to take a pilgrimage to church. So walk. We encourage all of you, try this. Wherever you're coming from, walk from your homes. Yes, walk. Rain or shine or snow. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Walk. My family and I, we live up in Hebron. 
It was about 22 miles in. We had to leave at 11 p.m. to get here by my 7 a.m. call time those first couple of years. Look, I'm not doing that this year. I'm old, you know? <laughs> but I tell you what, we're going to co park over at the Rusty Nail and do 10 miles in. And through darkness to dawn in the early morning, we're going to share something together and we're going to invite God into the midst of it. And every year, God's just kind of done something in us personally and in our family this way. Maybe you live closer. Rock on. Praise God for that gift. You know? Maybe not. Figure it out. Call some friends. It's a good thing to do together. Or if, if you're really going through some stuff, maybe this needs to be a solitary time. Some alone time. Some you and God time. Just you and him on the road, on the trail. And maybe you need to use it as a time of conversation with him in that way. You know, look, hop on our website, fellowshipoffaith.org. Right there on the homepage, you're going to see this big splash card that says Holy Week. And if you click into there, it's going to have all the information on our Holy Week services. But I want you in particular this week to look at Palm Sunday because you're going to find a button that you can click there. And it says Pilgrim Guide. And what it, what it is is just a series of reflections, thoughts, prayers, Bible verses to take with you on your pilgrimage next Sunday, coming in, a three, four, maybe five times along your journey, you just pause, you read this, you reflect on it. It'll take it from being just like a walk or an exercise kind of thing you're doing to something more. So make sure to access that week and bring it with on your phone and take a look coming in. But that's next Sunday, guys. 10 a.m. service, one service. Let's pack it in. Live streamers, get the word out. Share it with your friends. Be a part of it. You won't want to miss it. Sound good? All right, all right. So let's jump into it here today. Let's get back in and pick up the storyline. Here's what's going down. John, he's known as the Baptist, the baptizing one. John the Baptist is out by the Jordan River, and he's calling people to repentance. And he's calling people to repentance from every walk of life. He's specifically calling the people of God to repentance. Going, just because you're the people of God doesn't mean you're right with God. Just because you go by the name Christian, don't make the mistake that somehow your relationship with God is right. And he's calling out to them from the people on the farthest fringes of society to the religious elite and calling them to come to the river of the Jordan and to, to be plunged into it, to be baptized into it as a sign of, of, of this, this new birth and this washing that God is offering, as a sign of repentance and washing away their sins. And the people are starting to ask and murmur and wonder expectantly, is it him? Is he the one that's going to bring the kingdom? Because he's preaching the kingdom. He's warning us that the kingdom is upon us. He's telling us to get right with God because it's imminent. And with a sense of expectancy, this, this waiting, this yearning, the, 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 the word is going around. Is it him? And then Jesus shows up on the scene. And he comes up to John. And John looks at him and he goes, no, wait a minute. You got this wrong, Jesus. I need to be baptized by you. And Jesus says, no, take me in the water. And he goes into the water and John baptizes him. And the scriptures say that heaven literally tears open, like literally seeing the sky pulled apart. And the Holy Spirit 
just comes rushing down on him in physical form and a voice comes out of heaven saying, this is my son, it's him. And with him, I am well pleased and filled with the spirit. Jesus goes into the desert to go 40 rounds with the devil. He goes 40 rounds with the devil, filled in the power of the spirit in the desert, fasting and denying himself alone and vulnerable, going head to head in the grudge match of all grudge matches. And Satan keeps coming back at him, pummeling him, trying to exploit every weakness, 40 days without food, going, I know you're hungry. Do you see these stones? Turn them to bread. He takes them up to the mountaintops and he shows them the splendor and glory and the kingdoms of this world. And he says, these are mine and I'll give them to you, Jesus. If you just acknowledge me, bow down to me, pay homage to me, give lip service to me. He takes him to the highest pinnacle of the temple and and ground zero of, of religious life. He takes him to the pinnacle of the temple, the highest point for everyone, everyone who calls themselves by the name of the people of God to see. He says, throw yourself off of it and let him see how God delivers you because you know what God will. Let them see how God delivers you. Let them see the very hand of God upon you. And three times Jesus comes fighting back. Knocks Satan down once. Knocks Satan down twice. Knocks Satan down three times. T-K-O. And comes out of that desert filled with the Spirit and he goes back into Galilee. The area that he grew up, the area where the word was already starting to get around. And he gets into Galilee, filled with the power of the Spirit, and the people start to see, and the people start to hear, and he starts teaching in their synagogues, and they're amazed, and they start to spread the word everywhere concerning him. And now Jesus knows it's time to actually go home. No, not just the region, but the hometown. And the story picks up. Coming to Nazareth. Follow along with me. This is in Luke chapter 4. I'm going to start up at verse 15, 14, I think it is. Luke 4, 14. And there's things that I'm going to show you throughout this, but if you don't have it in front of you, you're not going to remember it. So I really encourage you, keep this open on your phone or on your Bible or whatever you have, or you know, if you've memorized it, even better. Keep it there in the forefront of your mind as I take you through and look at some of these connections we're going to make. It says, Jesus returned to Galilee. And Luke 4.14, he returned in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues and everyone praised him. And he went to Nazareth. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went to church. You know, he went to the synagogue. He came into the congregation. Maybe the very one where he grew up. And he went there as it was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it because they didn't use a book. He found the place where it was written. 
The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, are you following with in Luke? Are you following with in Luke or are you just reading the screen? It's important. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Before your eyes, what you have hoped and what the prophets foretold today. Today it is fulfilled in your hearing. What Jesus read is what today is often called the fifth servant song. In Isaiah, there's five poems or songs, if you will, about this mysterious person, figure, entity, not really always sure exactly how it or he identifies, but in Isaiah, there's these five poems or songs about this one called the servant. The servant of God. It's this, this servant of God through whom God is going to do his work. You ever wonder how God works? Well, Isaiah says God is going to work through his servant. And these five poems or these five songs give five different perspectives or takes on what this servant will be like, what he's going to be doing, how God's going to be working through him, what he's going to be about. This past Lent, we've been looking at each of these five songs about four weeks ago. We started with the first out of the earlier chapters of Isaiah, Isaiah 42, we saw that the servant was going to be one who is anointed by God's spirit. He's going to be anointed by God's spirit to bring justice to the earth, to set wrongs to right, and to bring God's goodness and righteousness back to the earth. But unlike so many who clamor for justice today, he isn't going to do it by violence or force. He isn't going to do it by intimidation or silencing. He isn't going to do it by bowling over those before him. No, far the opposite. It says, the smoldering wicks he will not snuff out, the bruised reeds of this world he will not dare even break. Three weeks ago, we saw another picture of a servant from Isaiah 49, described as God's secret weapon. A favorite arrow hidden in the quiver, a polished sword hidden in the hand, one who will be unexpected and yet effective. Two weeks ago in Isaiah 50, a third picture or poem about this servant who is resolute. One who is not filled, just floundering and wondering, filled with existential self-doubt. 
but one who is committed to the mission of God and will see it through. See it through even against mocking when people spit at him and pull out his beard. See it through against even harm to himself. And last week we saw more explicitly in Isaiah 52, a fourth picture playing more on that, that this servant will suffer. That this servant will suffer many things. That God will work through this suffering. That the servant will suffer because of God's people. Because of the injury and hurt that they bring into this world and heap upon him. But that he'll also suffer with God's people. Identifying with them in the suffering that they carry. And more than that, he'll suffer for people, on behalf of people, suffering in their place. But this time, Jesus comes into the synagogue and he opens to the fifth song. And at least as Isaiah would put it, here it is. The spirit of the Lord Yahweh is on me. Because Yahweh has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. Or in the Septuagint translation, the blind. To proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor and the day of vengeance of our God comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of despair. And if you were to read more in Isaiah, it goes on. It talks about how they'll be called oaks of righteousness, planted solid and firm that Zion will be planted firm again, strong and mighty and majestic. They'll be planted for the Lord full of the display of his splendor. That they'll rebuild the ancient ruins of Jerusalem and restore the places devastated. They'll renew the ruined cities that have been laid waste by Assyria and by Babylon for generations. That now, this time, if you were to keep reading the song in Isaiah, the foreigners, the foreigners who have oppressed you, Zion, they're going to come flocking to you, but not to take you into exile, but to serve you. They will shepherd your flocks. They will work your fields. They will tend your vineyards. And you will be priests, middleman between God and them. You will feed, it says, on the wealth of the nations. And in their riches, you will boast. Instead of shame, a double portion. Instead of great, instead of disgrace, God reversing it all. And everything that was taken from us, everything that we've lost, everything that was so unjustly stripped of us, Restored, renewed, twofold, and here's Jesus. Here's Jesus, and he opens up in a synagogue, and he starts reading from this passage. He starts reading it, 
And you have it open in Luke? What did he actually read? Because if you've been watching carefully, it isn't this. Oh, Jesus opened up to this in Isaiah 61. He opened the scroll and read before him, but... Did you catch the differences? If not, don't look at me, look at it. Because he didn't quite read this. But see, at first I thought he was going to. You know how it goes. Someone starts saying something and, and you know, everyone else just fills in the blank. Watch. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Allah. You didn't think I was going to go there, did you? See, we just kind of fill in the blanks because they knew this scroll. It was read every year. They knew this scroll. They knew where it was going. They knew it was a message of God taking those who are broken, the poor, the destroyed, the captives, and restoring them. They knew it was a message of hope for the people of Zion who had been crushed by Babylon and their restoration. But more than that, they knew it was a message of reversal. That not only were they going to be restored, but their enemies, ooh, their enemies were going to get theirs. A day of Yahweh's favor and a day of vengeance of our God. A day when Zion who grieves will get a crown of beauty and oil of gladness and garments of praise. A day when Zion will be planted like oaks. A day when Zion will get a double portion. A day when Zion will be served by their enemies. And look at what they say in Luke. Jesus reads, he reads, he reads the first portion of this song and he rolls it up and he says, today it will be fulfilled in your hearing and look at what they say next. All spoke well of him. And we're amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Now I say that phrase, gracious words. Like how do you kind of interpret that? Like if someone comes and speaks with gracious words or if someone says, you know, they, they wrote me a card and it was so gracious. You know, I was talking with, you know, so-and-so the other day and they were just so Gracious. What's it kind of bring to mind? It kind of brings to mind ideas like it was kind, right? It was kind. It was gentle. It was caring. It was empathetic. It was maybe even sentimental. It's kind of how we naturally think gracious words. But what if I just changed the phraseology a little bit? What if I called it words of grace? They were amazed at his words of grace. Does it just change the nuance a little bit? Does it just shift it a little bit from thinking about it being more as something kind and gentle or maybe even sentimental to being something instead filled a little bit more or more focused and centered on the idea of God coming to pronounce something of a gift that he's giving that we don't deserve? I mean, to be sure, we can cross it over, but doesn't your mind go in one of two different directions on whether I call it gracious words or words of grace? I want you to think about this verse in Luke. Less is gracious words and more is words of grace. 
they notice Jesus' words of grace. Did you? You might think you did, but I wonder if you do. Did you look at Isaiah 61 and what Jesus read in Luke 4? Did you see words of grace? Well, let me ask you. Let's throw it out there. What's the difference? Point out the difference. What did Jesus read in the synagogue that day? What did Jesus say? As opposed to what Isaiah had written. Did you catch it? Maybe I should put it this way. What's missing? What's missing in what Jesus had to say? As opposed to what Isaiah said 700 years before. Did you catch it? Did you catch the words of grace? You know, in both. In both. It talks about how the Spirit of God is upon him. How the Lord has anointed him christened him to preach good news to the poor, to mind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom from captives or for those who are in darkness or prisoners or the blind, depending on which translation of the Old Testament you go with, and to proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor. But have you seen what's missing yet? And what Jesus has to say, shout it out. What is it? What's that? Judgment. Specifically, what judgment? A day of vengeance of our God. Don't believe me, open to Luke. Look for yourself. He doesn't say it. He doesn't say it. He leaves it out. There is no day of vengeance that Jesus spoke of that day of God. They sat there and they listened and they were amazed and they were amazed at his words of grace. But see, they kept filling in the blanks. Because that's what we do. Because if I say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy, you know where to go. We always fill in the blanks. And Jesus realizes that they're still not grasping what he's actually saying. Because what are the rest of the blanks? To provide for those who grieve in Zion. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. A garment of praise instead of despair. It sounds like really good, right? These are really gracious words. If you identify is Zion. Who wants to be Zion? No? 
Well, you're on your own. I want that. They did too. They believed in that. Isn't that what God had promised them? Isn't that what God promises us? Isn't that what it's about? But Jesus is like, no, you're missing it. You're missing it. You're still missing what I have to say. And he goes on. Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. So Jesus, do it here. Do this here. Make it a reality in your life, Jesus. We know you're just a carpenter's son. And by extension, show us that it's a reality for us as well. Do here in your hometown what we've heard you did in Capernaum. Ah, Jesus, make it our reality. It's right there. But I tell you the truth, he continued. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them. But to a widow, a pagan, a Gentile, and Zarephath, and the region of Sidon, we're talking the worst of the worst areas in Jesus' day. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian, which, if you don't know your Bible stories well, was an enemy king of Israel at the time. And look at the response. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill which was, which, and the, which was, uh, on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. How mad do you got to be at someone that you turn on him on a dime, that you don't like what he says, and at one level you're going, oh, these gracious words, these words of grace, and now you're storming the guy out of town and ready to throw him off the cliff. Does it make sense to you? Let me help you. We are so fixated that God is for us that God has come for us. We are so fixated on it. Look at what Jesus has done for me. Look at my personal relationship with Jesus. Jesus died for me. If I was the only person alive, Jesus would have died for me. Yeah, he would have. But you know what it does? This fixation makes it about me. As though God's primary activity is me. God's first concern is me. God's starting point is always, how does this affect me? What will I get out of it? Will I like it? How will God help me? You know what Jesus is saying here when he reads this to them? Nazareth, what I've come to do is not fundamentally for you. It's for them. And when them are the ones who have hurt you, when them are the ones who have shamed you and humiliated you, when them are the ones who drove your people into exile and burned down your house and killed your kids, 
when them are the ones that we can go back in history and pinpoint as the source and root of all the woes and issues that we think we have. And he shows up and he says, I really haven't come for you as much as I've come for them. Well, how do you feel? Even worse, enter into a mental exercise with me. Think about the absolute worst person that you can think of, okay? And I don't mean like a made-up person. I mean a real person, the most horrible person that you can think of. I want you to get that person in your mind right now. You have it? Do you have him or her? Now, I want you to take it one more step. Let's assume for a moment that the person you conjured up in your mind is not someone that you know personally. But now take it into that arena. I want you to think of the most horrible person you have ever come across in your life, someone who's hurt you, shamed you, did things to you that are unspeakable, this might be an ex, this might be a parent, this might be someone who backstabbed or betrayed you, this might be someone random, but someone who came into your life, who intersected in your life, and they were horrible. They were cruel and they were vindictive. They were filled with lies and arrogance. They even gloated in the hurt that they brought upon you. Think, think do you have that person fixed? Now imagine coming to church on Sunday and Jesus walking in and starting to talk about things like restoration and renewal and oil of gladness instead of mourning and garments of praise instead of despair and crowns of beauty instead of ashes and freeing those who are in darkness and, and talking about binding up the brokenhearted and then saying, no, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about that person that you have fixed in your mind. Let's even make it worse. And the blessings that I'm going to pour out might even not hit you. You might not even get to share in them because I'm focused on giving it to them. How does that make you feel about God? Ready to throw him over a cliff? Honestly? If so, you can identify with the people of Nazareth that day. Because the mission of Jesus is to come and save the lost, to bind up the most broken of the broken to heal the most horrible of the horrible, to bring blessing and favor of God upon the worst of sinners. And that's just too much for some people to stomach. How about you? I love the end of this story. 
They go to throw him off the cliff. Here's the last verse. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Like, how does that even work? Like, do you ever just kind of, I, I just want to see this. Like, like it, was it just like this, oh, it's like, like it parted like the Red Sea? Or is it like, he like totally went incognito and he like flipped up the collar, you know, and put on the shades and just kind of, I, how did this work? It does strike me as interesting that when he went three rounds with the devil in the desert, Satan took him to the highest pinnacle of the temple and said, throw yourself down and watch God deliver you and Jesus wouldn't. And now when the people were ready to do the exact same thing and throw him down, God delivered him. I got something hard to tell you. It doesn't matter if you're angry at God. It doesn't matter if you've rejected him and thrown him off a cliff. And you know why it doesn't matter? Because your anger and stubbornness and frustration and hurt that you're lashing out with doesn't hurt him one bit. You think you're hurting him by this? Yeah, he wants a relationship with you, but you're not stopping him. You're not hindering him. He'll just walk on by. Right through your midst. The invitation of Isaiah, and not just the servant songs, is for stubborn, hard-hearted, stiff-necked, iron-sinewed, bronze-forehead people. to stop headbutting God, thinking that they're going to lay him flat and accepting his agenda and going with that instead. You know, I've learned something. You can fight God your whole life and the only one it's making miserable is you. Or you can turn and say, thy will be done. And start to find the things that Isaiah had to say. Invite the band to come up. And we're going to sing a song, and it's called Our God. And it's one that we know well here. But I want to turn it on its head. Because I think there's a line that we sing in it that we often interpret the wrong way. And if our God is for us, then who could ever stop us? And if our God is for us, then who can stand against? That was beautiful, wasn't it? <laughs> Thank you. Because <laughs> I need affirmation. I'm glad you didn't throw me off this cliff, you know? But you know, you know the line? What, what's the implication? How do you fill in the gaps? God is for me, so who can stand against me? God is with me, who can stand against? Isn't that how you fill in the gaps? But you know what? It's a rhetorical question that doesn't actually give that answer. 
Because if you look at the rest of the song, it's about our God and not about you. See, the question is not, is God for me? The question is, are you with him? And let that thought drive you as we sing this today. Let's get on our feet.